Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Priesthood Dispatchers here. Today's episode, episode 8 of the After Dinner Chat series, this time with the one, the only, September 6th, Paul Toscano. Woo! I I think that was a bit lacklustre. It's more like it. Thank you, children. Uh, Paul is very candid in this episode, and it is fantastic. So, enjoy listening. Please like, subscribe, review wherever you find your podcast. Look in the description below uh, for links to the Priesthood Dispatchers website and where you can read some of the blog, some of Priesthood Dispatchers stories and contribute yourself. Okay, let's get on with it. Priesthood Dispatchers, apologies for the late start. We've had some serious IT issues here in their collab. I think the Wi-Fi has gone down and uh, I'll have to speak with the gardener about that. Um, some people have been asking how they can support the blog and the show. Um, the best ways to do that are to subscribe to the show on YouTube, go to your social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Follow us there. And also in the description below, there's a link to the tips page if you are feeling generous. Today's show is a very special one that I've been looking forward to all week. Uh, we have with us coming all the way from uh, the United States, Paul Toscano. Um, some of you may know him from the September 6th, but as I put in the description, Paul is a lot more than just the September 6th. Paul um, has worked at BYU with the Enzyme. His mission, we're about to hear, was epic. He's rubbed shoulders with some of the biggest names in Mormonism that you will remember from your time growing up and coming through the ranks um but hello paul thanks for coming to us james it's uh, it's good to be on your show fantastic um so paul i want to speak first about how you became a mormon what it was that that brought you in everyone has a different journey a lot of people have been born into mormonism but i understand it was different for you how did you first come across mormonism Well, I was in high school, and uh, I had a friend who was a Mormon by the name of Blaine Lee, and he was uh, very um, gung-ho about the uh, program that the church had back in the early 60s, which was uh, every member a missionary, and he basically proselyted me while I was in high school. Okay. And he said, you know, he was what do you know about the Mormon church? Would you like to know more? And I said, absolutely not. I'm a Catholic. I have my own religion. I don't know what this is about. But over time, he kind of talked me into meeting with the missionaries. And I was very interested in Mormon doctrine. I was certainly not interested in Mormon culture, but I was interested in Mormon doctrine. And so eventually I I became converted. Did you feel like it was a big stretch from Catholicism to Mormonism? Or did you find parallels there? Oh, I always thought that there were more parallels between Mormonism and Catholicism than Mormonism and Protestantism, and uh, I still hold that view. Yeah, you see, I've, I think I felt it was kind of the other way around, but I think that was uh, a layman's kind of view of it. But there was always the story um, that I told as a missionary and that was told to me, I think it's a famous one, of the Catholic priest, I think, who spoke to a Mormon and said it was... Uh, either they had the truth or we had the truth and that it was only one of the two because either the Catholics had the priesthood down through the ages through Paul etc from Christ himself or if they were wrong we were the restoration of things but no one else could claim truth it was only those two things and I think the way that the church kind of frames the Catholic church as being the horror of all the earth and uh, and different things kind of knocked that one out of the park and made at least me as a missionary feel warm and fuzzy. Um, there are a lot of candidates for horror of the earth <laughs> that the Catholic Church is really anymore at the top of the list. Yeah, well, yeah, I'd, I'd put the Mormon Church up there at the minute, but we we move on. Um, so Catholicism. 
I think kind of moves into your mission field or you move into the mission field of Catholicism. Um, and where did you serve your mission? Well, I served my mission in Italy when, when the Italian mission was one mission. It was uh, originally a kind of subset of the, um, of the Swiss mission, mm -hmm. but uh, it became its own mission in 1966. And when I was called, it was still part of the Swiss mission. But when I arrived in Italy in October of 1966, it was its own mission. Okay. And you, um, you were able to do something quite special as a missionary. And before you tell us what it was, what I'd like to know as well is why you? Because there will have been other missionaries there, I'm sure. Um, so as, as you tell us uh, also, why, why would, did you have the privilege of doing that. Well, let me say, tell you one little story before this, because I think it lays a foundation. I had to lie to go on my mission. I had to lie to my bishop to go. Didn't we all? And, well, this is a very peculiar lie. And that is uh, when I was interviewed by Bishop Minor, my bishop in Baldwin Park, California, I lived in West Covina and I was in the Baldwin Park uh, Second Ward. He asked, I, I, I was coming back from my freshman year at BYU It was during the Vietnam era, so I didn't think I was going to go on a mission because um, we didn't have a quota. We had two had already gone to Italy from my ward, and there was no more quotas for any missionaries. But he called me in one day and said, "We there was a, another ward that had a, an open quota, an open spot. We took it. I'm calling you to go to, on a mission. I didn't think I was going to go to Italy, but... Uh, I, I, I said, oh, great, you know, I, I guess I can go if I can come up with the money. And um, we were talking, and, and I mentioned to him how I, at BYU I'd taken a lot of religion courses in the year or two that I was there, and how I'd learned that Joseph Smith had started practicing polygamy as early as the early 1830s. And he stopped in his tracks, and he looked at me, and he said, Elder, Joseph Smith never practiced polygamy. Wow. That's a teaching of, a, of the reorganized church. And I can't send you on a mission if you believe the false teachings of the reorganized church. And at first I thought he was joking, because of course the reorganized church is the one that believes that Joseph Smith never practiced polygamy. At least that was true in the early 60s. Yeah. And so I looked, at, I looked it into his face and I realized he was serious. His, his, he, he was a simple creature, this bishop. <clears throat> And so I had a, an opportunity either to correct him or to lie. And I realized I couldn't correct him because he wouldn't believe me. So I just lied and said, oh, I, I'm a convert. I must have gotten it mixed up. I, I guess <laughs> Joseph never practiced polygamy. And based on that lie, I was sent on my mission. Okay. That... And when I got there, to answer your, your question that you asked me, Uh, I, in uh, January of 1967, I was one of two missionaries that was called to open the city of Rome. And David Rohde was my senior companion. I was his junior companion. He was the district leader, and we opened Rome. And um, he, uh, he was eventually transferred out. Uh, and I was still there in July of 1967, And that was when the word came down that we should dedicate the city. And I was the, probably the only missionary left from the first group that went. And because I had opened Rome, I, I guess they figured that it would be, they would ask me to do the dedicatory prayer, which I did early one morning in July um, from, I think, the Palatine Hill. And... Uh, We huddled up there and got on our knees and there was no one else around and I dedicated the city. Um, I don't know whether you can see these notices coming in, these banners. Uh, nope, nope, you're fine. Anyway, they, um, I dedicated the city of Rome and I blessed all the people and all the livestock and all the plants and all the structures and everything that I could think of. And it must have worked because here 55 years later, there dedicating a temple yeah i'm not sure that my prayer had anything to do with that you know i can i can see the church history video now of these elders knelt down i'm sure they'd rename you something else 
but I, I can see it at sun sunrise on the hill looking over the city um it's the the perfect kind of uh yeah faith promoting story that's how it was we were we were in we were surrounded by trees and bushes sitting on the ground kind of we couldn't see anything but oh wow. though we couldn't see it and incidentally they, there was a, a video that came out recently about the rome temple and uh, one of the old missionaries was in it and he mentions this story of the dedication of the city of rome by the missionaries but of course because i'm an excommunicant i was not mentioned no i've been stricken from all the obelisks and all of the records of the church as an excommunicant uh, persona non grata they I'm a persona grata. they used to do that with the uh, the roman legions um if uh, uh, uh they did it with julius caesar with his um his legion uh, in the i'm showing i'm showing up my uh, poor education here but they'd strike off off the stone the legion would be up on the up on the stone they'd literally chisel chisel it off and uh, but i think that's what they've it must get difficult because of the the way that you are intertwined in some of these stories because there are articles i wrote for the ensign that you can't find in the main, in the main index because uh, I wrote them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like I, I didn't even I didn't even think that when you said that you worked at the Enzyme, um that your name would be all over the place, and they they're just taking it out. Not anymore. Fair <laughs> enough. Um, now something for for those uh, joining us. Before the call, we were just speaking, and I was saying to, um, I was talking about how you kind of lived and, and came through a part of church history where things were still happening, like you dedicating the Rome temple, uh, the the city of Rome, not the temple, sorry, um, mm -hmm. and like the fact that you were you were able to be in a church that was still small enough to be it was big enough on the world stage to be known but it was small enough so that the people inside it had uh closer connections to the top um i know my my dad when he was stake president it was still at a time when they flew the stake presidents out once a year for training at general conference whereas now the last 20 years maybe 30 years since the 90s the church has gone in the direction of, um, you know, multi-level management and different things. And you, you can never get past the middleman these days. Uh, but you were able to be there with the very top. Um, and we're going to talk. We had a saying that the church was big enough to give you the economy deal, but small enough to give you the hometown service. And, um, I, you know, I met a lot of the... I, you know, I had a number of interviews, uh, uh, contacts with Harold B. Lee, um, and uh, one long interview with him that went on for an hour and a half. Uh, I had a personal interview with uh, Spencer Kimball. Um, after I was excommunicated, I received word from uh, Howard W. Hunter that he thought highly of me and he was not happy with my excommunication um, what was his calling at the time he was the president of the council of the 12 when he said that but but he a couple of months later he became president of the church i was going to say it was it was close to that time wasn't it and maybe as president of the council of the 12 he'd got the latitude to be able to say that at the time but as president of the church he, he would have been. Well, the reason I was excommunicated was because Ezra Taft Benson was comatose. And when, because he was not functioning, there was an apostolic interregnum where the counselors to the first presidency, who were uh, Gordon Hinckley and Thomas Monson, were, um, they, they, they are a little bit diffident about running the church without a, an act, a president who's able to function. And so they create 
uh, what they call the Council of the First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve, and they meet together during this apostolic interregnum. And when that happens, the apostles have a lot more say-so yeah. than normally do. And Boyd Packer was a senior member of the Twelve, had a great deal of say-so, and he was the one who had engineered uh, and I would say connived the excommunication of the September 6th. He even went down to Salem, Utah, where uh, Avraham Gileadi was living, and the state president down there wouldn't excommunicate Avraham. And so Boyd Packer arranged for the state president to be released, and uh, he appointed a new state president who did excommunicate wow. Avraham Gileadi. That's why I might so, get around it. There, Boyd Packer, his biggest problem was that he confused the church with the Air Force. And he thought of himself not as a general authority, but as an actual general yeah. giving orders. And he did step over the line because he did connive my excommunication because he interfered with it by, by uh, talking to my state president, Kerry Hines, at the time. And Steve Benson, if you look up Steve Benson, who was the grandson of who's the cartoonist, was the cartoonist for years for the Arizona Republic. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial cartoonist. He, at his website, which anybody can get online and see, he's got the whole story about how uh, that went down and how Dallin Oaks lied to cover up uh, Boyd Packer's involvement in my excommunication. So it, was, uh, it all came out in the newspaper finally. But it was very embarrassing for Dallin Oaks and, and Boyd Packer. Oh, I think I think um, Dallin Oaks is going to have some more embarrassment in the coming weeks um, because he's just been. I think it's it's starting to hit the mainstream press, at least over in uh, California, where he lied about his involvement in the uh, shock and vomit therapy at BYU, and yeah, some of the secular papers are starting to pick that up now. So that's that'll be fun for him. Um, he, he keeps doing this. I, I don't know why. I, I don't know if he's getting to the point where he's just a little bit senile, or if he's no, no, he's senile. If he's just, I think he's just covering up because he, his his view is, and all of their view is, that they have to line up behind their senior apostles, and they will do what's necessary to cover for them. Yeah, that's the whole problem with Mormonism. The whole problem with Mormonism is that junior apostles over the history of the church have had to to sustain and back up their senior apostles even when they were dead and that's why uh that's why the that's why the church racism happened joseph smith i don't think was particularly at all racist i mean he I, i've got a lot of evidence to suggest that he did not he did not buy into the racist picture at all in his day but Brigham Young was racist and then once he met these public racist statements yeah his juniors all the way down to Russell Nelson have got to put on the show yeah. that none of them ever made a mistake they've never said anything that was false and so okay. that's well if we go back a little bit back into your, your time in the church um, mm -hmm. and thinking of BYU maybe before you joined BYU later in life, um, did you ever have any, I guess, um, contact with Ernest Wilkins? Wilkinson? Wilkins. Well, I, I did have a contact with Ernest L. Wilkinson, who was the president of BYU. Uh, and yes, I did. I, when I was in, <laughs> I had a short unsuccessful stand in musical theater and uh, my uh, Gary Fisher and I who we were both in the opera workshop went over and talked to Ernest L. Wilkinson about I can't even remember what it was about but it was something about his um, constant the, the constant rumor was that the, that he was going to interfere with the arts or I can't remember why, but I actually sat down and met with Ernest L. Wilkinson to register this complaint, but it got nowhere. But um, yeah, I, I remember meeting with Ernest L. Wilkinson. Okay. So I, I heard he was a bit of a ball breaker, uh, but 
He was uh, he was a strange man. <laughs> Very diplomatic. So you was... you you went on to um, the BYU faculty, but before you actually took up your post on the faculty in 1972, you had an interview with an assistant to the 12, Bernard P. Brockbank. Every faculty member had to be interviewed by a general authority. Okay. So I, I drove up to Salt Lake and went to the church office building. Back then it was very different than it is now. Um, it was, um, they built the big tall building but the administration building, the little, it's a beautiful building, it's a jewel of a Greek uh, type architecture. And, but back then, uh, they still had, you know, genealogical microfilm reading machines that you could go in. Church members had a lot more access with the general authorities in the late sixties and even early seventies. Yeah. And um, so when I went, I, you, you could, you know, I, I met uh, Bruce McConkey jumping down the steps and jumping over the railing to the next step. You could see that. And Joseph Fielding Smith in the 60s, this was Joseph Fielding Smith Jr. who became the 10th president of the church. You could see him wandering around the hallways. Wow. General authorities were very more, much more accessible. By the time I was became a faculty member, which was in the early 70s, that was less so. So when I went, I went to the big uh, tall building to meet with uh, Bernard P. Brockbank. And uh, I went into his room. He was putting on his jacket. He gestured to me to sit down. And he sits in his chair across the desk from me. And he says to me, do you believe in God? And I said, yeah, I, I do. I, I believe I, I'm going one better. I, I actually believe in Jesus and the Holy Ghost. <laughs> And he says to me, there is a God, you know. Okay. I said, okay, I believe that. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament sheweth his handiwork. And I said, okay. <clears throat> and he went on like this a little bit. And then he suddenly stood up, put out his hand. I shook it. He said, good afternoon. And so I left. And that was the very odd. The next day, uh, there was a devotional assembly that at the BYU went to the devotional assembly. Who should be speaking but Bernard P. Brockbank, who gets up to the microphone, and the first thing he says, do you believe in God? <laughs> there is no. The heavens declare the glory of God. He was practicing his speech on me. <laughs> so that was a very peculiar interview, I felt. Oh, my gosh. That's, that's so, random. You know, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, I, it speaks for itself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's there's nothing there. Like, I just thought it would be like a temple recommend interview, uh, you know, something standard like that. But just, just to doorstep you with that. He doorstepped me. Maybe he just felt that you didn't ridicule him uh, and uh, he felt your spirit. And your spirit was kind, so he, he was good with uh, with you continuing on. So I want, I want, I, my spirit was kind; it was more bewildered than anything. <laughs> Deer in headlights. So your time at uh, BYU, you uh, you were the faculty supervisor for student publications, and as well, you organised the first BYU festival for Mormon arts. I did. I mean, what happened was that I uh, I got back from my mission. I didn't have very good grades before my mission. When I got back, I, I did very well. I got all A's all the time. And um, I graduated in English, and then I got a master's degree in English literature, focusing on Shakespearean literature. And then um, in the process of doing that, I, I was also... Uh, asked to, uh, I was on the uh, yearbook staff and then I became uh, a reporter briefly for the uh, student newspaper and then I was asked to start up a magazine for the university called the Monday Magazine which I was the charter editor for and as a result of my work on the Monday Magazine uh, I became uh, friends with 
Lauren F. Wheelwright, who was the dean of the College of Fine Arts and Communications, and uh, he asked me to join the faculty of communications to supervise all the student publications. Okay. So that's how I got that job. Now, the faculty was very upset at him for doing this because they felt they had no say in that appointment. And so as a result of that, I could feel the pressure. They didn't really want me on the faculty. And so I resigned from the faculty and after that took a position at the Ensign Magazine up in Salt Lake. But while I was uh, serving on, as the supervisor of the student publications, I, um, I, uh, Lauren F. Wheelwright, uh, who had written, written a book about Mormon arts, wanted to have a festival of Mormon arts. Yeah. And so I actually coordinated that festival for the first time. Okay. I mean, it, it was just getting a bunch of artists to make contributions. I had to supervise the publication of, uh, through the printing press there, the BYU Press, a bunch of different kinds of printed materials and get the music department to put on the the big festival ball that they had so that's what i did it, w it was just a grunt work okay uh, i remember as a, a child one of the highlights of church was uh, the byu dancers came across and did a, a tour i don't know if it was of europe or just great britain but i do remember as a small child going and sitting in a not wasn't a church i think it was like a leisure center kind of sports hall um, and they did some fantastic dancing. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. Yeah. Sorry? I think they had a ballroom dance group that went around, and they also had folk dancers. Yeah. I, I think it was – it might have been the uh, – I don't know. They. I just remember the lights went down, and, like, black lights came on, and they were all wearing – stripes so they look like stick men and dancing but i just thought it was amazing and for me uh, that was kind of a faith affirming thing like oh wow no one does it like byu does it um and you even over here in the uk you develop some sort of like byu are amazing at everything football some would argue um you know but it was byu and the 49ers and 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 that was it for kind of American culture in the UK. If you were Mormon, those were your teams. Um, university of Utah, it's not even a university, was it? <laughs> but we'll get there, we'll get there. I think we've, we've missed one um, major factor in your life, and that was how you met your wonderful wife. Well, um, I met her uh, through a friend of mine, Guy Potter, who married her. She was married to Guy before she married me. They weren't married in the temple. Uh, eventually, he was he was a little bit uh, broad-minded, so to speak. Perhaps that is a very apt expression. To, and so she eventually divorced him because he uh, he wasn't particularly faithful. Okay. And uh, well, I have to say. Guy was a, he was a very uh, interesting man. He, um, he was a friend of mine and of Margaret's, and um, he was a, quite a serious researcher into Mormon history. Um, and so they got married. I was a witness at their wedding. <laughs> and um, then they got divorced, and then after that, I, I married Margaret. Yes. <laughs> and we were married. Temple. Fantastic. <laughs> Although when we married in the temple, the um, the temple sealer thought it was a sealing and not a wedding. So uh, he treated it like we were already married. And then at the end of the ceremony, he asked for the child to be brought in so that the child could be sealed to us. And everybody was astonished, including me. I, I turned to Margaret and I said, do we have a child I don't know about? <laughs> So the sealer got it all mixed up, and um, but we uh, we assumed that the sealing work uh, that the temple marriage worked, and uh, so that's I really knew Margaret for a while before I married her. Yeah, I I, um, I attended my brother's wedding in Canada, uh, much like you do them in in the states. Uh, it's all in the temple over here in the UK. We have to get married civilly 
um, outside the temple first and then go and be sealed at the temple. But uh, my dad was a temple sealer at the time and he got permission, a letter from the first presidency to take with him to the temple in Alberta to perform the sealing or the, the wedding for my brother and his wife. And just as, as you do in the sealing room, we went through the whole um, yeah, process. And then mm. my dad said at the end um, that he'd done the wrong ceremony and he'd done the ceremony for um, just as rote as if it was um, for and in behalf of someone who has passed on. And he's like, oh, there's, there's a few paragraphs extra if it's a living wedding. Um, so he had to start again, go back to the beginning and start it all again. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. well, mistakes happen. Yeah, well, I'm sure God's big enough and ugly enough to be able to get over a couple of paragraphs. Um, to realize that the Lord looks over many things. Yeah, well, it's, it's the, the, the classic uh, sacrament prayer. Uh, when I was bishop, I was sat on the stand and there was a an older brother blessing the sacrament. And I think it must have been five times he'd redone it and he just couldn't get it right. And my counselor kept looking at him and do it again. And I just turned to him and I said, I really don't care anymore. It's been blessed enough. enough. Yeah. <laughs> like we will get through, we'll get by. Stop embarrassing the man. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> now you, you said something that's a little bit left field. And I think when we all think of the Watergate scandal, we think of tortures in an office building and Forrest Gump looking down and, and seeing that and then calling someone and saying, uh, I don't, you know, very innocently that there's some tortures. And it was the biggest scandal at the time from the American government. Obviously, now you've had Donald Trump and different things, but you found yourself in the middle of the Watergate scandal and in the Oval Office. Yeah, I just happened to be in Washington. Uh, I'd left BYU. Um, I, I'd worked, um, I, I, I left BYU for the Ensign and then I left the Ensigns. And then I uh, was looking around for a job and somebody suggested that the, um, the United States Information Agency was hiring people because I was very much interested in become, being a journalist. I, I didn't. I didn't have lawyer being a lawyer on my radar at that time. So I went out to Washington and a friend of mine uh, was uh, serving as an intern in, in the White House, in Nixon's White House. And um, I, um, he just invited me over and I went in and Nixon was down the hall getting a haircut. Uh, he was to get the true haircut a year later when he resigned. But I, I was just happened to be there. Um, I had been watching the Watergate hearings and um, happened to just wind up in the Oval Office during the Nixon administration. I mean, there's nothing more than that. It's just no, odd. You, you can see it now, yeah. though, that, um, you know, a, a week later, special forces come through the door at 5 a.m., because some chain of events, something's happened and some information's gone missing. And you quite innocently just happened to be walking, uh, you know, through the Oval Office as you do. And, uh, and, and they think you're some Russian spy or something like that. I could see yeah, it. I could have been sucked into a B-movie plot, right? Yeah, yeah. And then you say to your wife, she just looks at you. She's like, seriously, what's going on? No, awesome. I just think it's amazing that you, you were even there. I think at the same time, it, it was that time in the world where there was that sort of access, whereas now you, you wouldn't even get close to the West Wing without so many checks and vetting and all sorts of things happening. Whereas back then, you know, there, there was just access to these places um, and you could have these stories. So, well, here's one that... Uh, we kind of skipped over. In 1966, when I was called on my mission, I was there was no language training mission. We just spent a week at the Salt Lake Missionary Home and then sent to Italy. 
Well, while I was there, uh, I I had wanted to ask uh, Harold B. Lee of what he thought of the Adam God teaching. Ooh. And so I called from the mission home there. I called him his office. Well, I was expecting to get his secretary and kind of try to wrangle an interview, but he picked up the phone. He picked up his own phone. He said, this is elderly. And I said, oh, <laughs> I said, well, I'm a, I'm Paul Toscano. I'm in the mission home on my way to Italy. And I wanted to ask you a question about Adam God, but honestly, elderly, I thought your secretary would pick up the phone and that I would make an appointment. He said, come right over right now. I said, now I, I, I'm not supposed to leave here. He says, well, I give you permission to leave. Come over right now. So I went over to the church administration building and I was escorted immediately up to his office. He had a big corner office. And uh, I went in and he's sitting at his desk and he said, now, Elder, what's your question? I said, well, you know, I, I read that Brigham Young taught that Adam was God, and I'm just kind of curious as to what your thoughts were about this. He said, well, my thought is that it's a false and pernicious doctrine, and you should forget all about it. And I said, well, Brigham Young taught it, so what am I to make of that? He said, forget about it. I said, okay, I'll forget about it. I wasn't sure I was really going to forget about it, but I, you know, I've learned with yeah. my Bishop Leo Manor that sometimes it's better to let things slide. And then he was very harsh with me. You know, he was very blunt and very harsh wow. and very stern. And uh, it could show on my face. And, uh, and so, but then I had an idea popped in my head. I said, I have one more question, elderly, and if you don't mind, he said, well, what is it? And I said, will you ever be president of the church? Well, I I might as well have rung Big Ben, you know, the bell just sounded, right? Because he just went off for an hour and a half explaining to me, yes, apostolic succession and how it worked, and where he was in the line of authority, and why it would happen the way it did and and then he expatiated on a number of other subjects and i sat there listening to harold b lee discourse like this and he just warmed up to me and by the end of it you know he gave me a pat and a shake of the hand and sent me off and oh my that interview with harold b lee when he was of course in uh, he was a senior uh, he was very powerful apostle at the time and he was um pushing correlation which we initially thought was just lining up the lessons in all the various uh, uh meetings that people go to and that they would all be coordinated but he was really bringing all of the auxiliaries and the relief society and the sunday school and the ymmia and the ywmia and the primary he was in the missionary program and the home teaching. He was bringing all of that under the direct control of the Quorum of the Twelve. And uh, because his idea of correlation was to eliminate, well, back in the 60s and before that, the church was a loose confederation of warring tribes. Yeah. Um, it, it was, it was, um, you know, it was confederated. I'm plugging in my phone because it's going to lose power. So here, let me. No worries. It's going to. It's going to be difficult because I've got a. Are you? Am I still there? Yeah, we got you. Sorry, folks. Live, my phone would lose power. Anyway, uh, he he would, and so he talked about correlation in that meeting with me and what his intent was, and. I thought it was a good idea at the time. I didn't realize that this was a move toward absolute power for the apostles. Yeah. And that they would it would it would move the church inexorably uh, to the condition that it is in today, where there's very little room for disagreement or for different ideas. Everything has to be approved. So no matter where you are in the church uh, administration, 
you have to be approved by another committee, another committee, until eventually you get back to the first presidency in the Council of the Twelve. So they run everything. Yeah. Well, I think the, the correlation committee um, are just having a heyday with Russell M. Nelson at the minute when it comes to some of the announcements he comes out with uh, and, and his U-turns when I, I genuinely think... So he, he speaks about his process of revelation. He's got a little notebook in his bedroom and sometimes at night he will ask Wendy to leave because he's about to receive revelation and he will write in his notebook what the Lord has, has told him. And then I genuinely think he just wakes up in the morning and he's like, right, we're going to do this. And he tells everyone we're going to do this. The last one was canceling priesthood session of conference because, uh, you know, it'd been revealed to him. We didn't need priesthood session anymore because everyone can watch, you know, there's no need to just gather the priesthood, even though that had been, you know, from the beginning of the church, gathering all the priesthood on the earth in the same place. So he did that. And then three days later, they came out and they reinstated the session, but not as priesthood session now, just as a special session for everyone else. Um, and it is, I guess it's, it's thought of that possibly... He came up with that great idea, put the cart before the horse and made the announcement. And then someone came to him and said, you do realize that you're, cut, you're cutting uh, seven or eight talks out of conference. So that's seven or eight times that the brethren won't be able to speak. You know, we, we so we're going to have to get the brethren in elsewhere, which will impact on some of the general authorities from around the world speaking. And it will definitely impact on the time we have for sisters to speak. Uh, and yeah, so they, they pedaled back on that pretty fast. But I do think that there's some committees, the correlation committees and possibly others behind the scenes that tr struggle to keep up with him. So. Well, he's the ambassador for the church. And, um, and the biggest aspect of his disastrous administration is the um, the uh, fact that they they now are saying more and more. I hear it more and more from church leaders that we learn line upon line, precept upon precept. Mm -hmm. This is something that they say more and more. Now, what this means is that this is a uh, a one hundred and eighty degree turn in theology. Because what used to be believed was that Joseph Smith was the only real prophet we ever had, because he, he's the one from whom all of the scriptures emanate. But now what they, and they believe that basically their job was to pass on the church in at least as good a condition as they got. It. That was Boyd Packer's big concern. But now I think Russell Nelson has... Uh, I think he's the source of it. He believes that every succeeding prophet is better than the last. That Joseph Smith was just the young founder. And that over the years, the church is getting better and better because the Lord is adding line upon line, precept upon precept. And is on this, on the basis of this idea, that he can throw under the bus uh, Thomas Monson, who used to love singing, I'm a Mormon boy, no more, no more singing that, because we can't say Mormon anymore. And, and uh, Gordon B. Hinckley, who was the architect of the I'm a Mormon uh, campaign, where a lot of uh, diverse-looking people would appear on television and say, I'm a Mormon. Yeah. Uh, but you can't say that anymore because I have to say I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so the reason he can do this, including what you mentioned about the priesthood meeting, was because he believes that the Lord is working, that the church is getting better and better. Yeah. Because with new prophet, the Lord is adding more line upon line, precept upon precept. And that's how they justify the changes in the temple. 
and that's how they justify everything that they do now, uh, including their inexorable march toward being more like evangelicals than they are than they were originally more like Catholics. I said they've become far more like evangelicals. I mean, I think you were telling me, or somebody was telling me that Russell Nelson, uh, not Russell Nelson, but um, Jeff Holland had given a speech about, you know, where he's in support of the young creationist theory yeah. that the earth only 7,000 years, because it mentions this in section 77, verse six, that, yeah. which if you read it carefully, that's not at all what it's talking about. It's just saying that the seven thousand, the, the the seven seals in Revelation is connected with the seven days of creation. But it's it's not it's not a revelation about how old the Earth is at all. It's just connecting these two symbols, saying this symbol this symbolism is connected to symbol this symbolism. But neither symbol is is enunciating some scientific. Uh, statement about the age of the earth, but so they're slurging more toward uh, uh, conservative Protestantism and even the evangelical view, certainly the evangelical attitude toward the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah. So I find this uh, a horrific uh, development in the history of Mormonism. Yeah. I. I think that they they've decided. I mean, we're we're talking about you know uh, someone who's a bit of an egomaniac, but I really feel that they know now um, that they're not getting non-religious people to become religious. But what they can do is they can get people who already have a background in religion, who were brought up catholic or evangelical and they can help them to make the transition there to mormonism but what they need to do is they need to bring mormonism just a little bit closer so that transition is not quite as much of a a leap whereas probably the church that i grew up in the church that you were you know a missionary in, in different things it was quite a leap to go from um mainstream christianity to mormonism you know, you had to learn to grow horns and all sorts of things. Whereas mm -hmm. now they'll they'll show you their Jesus in a bathtub logo, and we're, we're, it's all it's Jesus Christ Church because the name says it's Jesus Christ Church. Just like right. the, the company Apple has orchards and provides for starving children. You know, lots of apples because the name is Apple. You know, doesn't make it so. But that's true. I. <laughs> And, and with the line upon line thing, I, I do think that's the case, but I think they've missed out one important word, and it is line upon redacted line, because every time they uh, they add a new line, they kind of just cross out the one underneath and add the that's new right. one. If you actually go to the source of the line upon line, precept upon precept, I believe it comes from Isaiah. And um, Isaiah, in Isaiah, the Lord says, because you're such a backward, stiff-necked people, I'm going to give you line upon line, precept upon precept. It's a curse. Yeah. Uh, the curse, the reason why I think it's horrific, and because I said this uh, a long time ago when I had my meeting with Dallin Oaks back in 1984 when he was first made an apostle, and I told him, I said, the problem of the, with the church is the, the apostles. You're, you're the worst apostles in the history of Christianity. That went and the, well. reason, or the reason why you are is because you are under the erroneous view that you have the authority to change the gospel. But that's not true. The gospel is like your constitution. The gospel is what controls you. You don't have the right to alter the words of Jesus Christ when he was present with us on earth. You don't have that right. You're supposed to bear witness of him not change his gospel, but they have come to believe that they have the authority to alter the gospel. And so rather than the gospel being about spiritual transformation, which Jesus presents in the New Testament as being born again, 
that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but you have to be born of the spirit. You have to be transformed in, in, by a spiritual something that has to happen to you. They're, they're, that's not their message. Their message is we're going to go back to being born of the flesh, and we're going we're gonna to focus on the biological fleshly family, which we can seal together in the temple, and we're going to make that ordinance of the sealing of the biological family the apex of Mormonism. That's what we're going to peddle to the world. You guys have got all kinds of stuff, but what we can do with our priesthood is we can seal your family together so you're all together in the hereafter, which sounds okay until you realize that what they mean by family is this obedient, compliant group of people that submit to the patriarch of that family. Yeah. Who who basically um, sub, subordinate their judgment to the judgment of the leaders of the church? It, it, it isn't at all about uh, free will. It's it's extreme. It's very curious. One of the ways the church is not Catholic anymore, it, it's because it never really was in the sense that in the Catholic Church, if you sin, the priest can absolve your sins. He can give you absolution. In the Protestant, you know, beginning with Luther, and the, I'm not sure about Lutheranism, but at the time of Luther, but certainly after Calvin and, and Melanchthon and the, the, the Protestant Reformation, I mean, there was no way to get absolution in the Protestant church. You were either predestined to hell or predestined to heaven, and the good works you did were really manifestations of an already existing determination by God. So you don't really need the devil in Protestantism. God is the devil. He sends you to hell. He sends you to heaven. It's all fixed from the beginning. That was the religion of the Enlightenment. It's very logical, but it doesn't leave much room for hope. Yeah. In, in Catholicism, at least you could go to the confessional, confess your sins. That can be abused because you can go murder somebody, go confess your sins, and you can get an absolution maybe. But Mormonism doesn't have either one of those. It's kind of not predestination. It's not absolution. You're just kind of always under the thumb of your priesthood leaders yeah. in these personal interviews. So it's really the worst of both. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's what came to mind was a, a spiritual eugenics program. They want to just narrow down to this spiritual profile, which they see as being fantastic and the the perfect member and then every everything else can be cast off uh, and and passed down so we had um, some foreshadowing to your 1993 um i guess excommunication in 1980 when you say you were informally excommunicated and had your record annotated 